2009, November 16. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 35, at the Solar Neighborhood. Well, there's a, there's a, a bit of a method to the madness of this section. Is, of course, we're talking about life on other stars, life in the universe. And what we've been building up towards is sort of the big finale is, well, where about places we're going to look? So last week we had to look at the properties of stars and determine... What are the properties of stars? How do they relate to the requirements that we know of for life? And by the end of Friday last week, we boiled it down to, we now know what we should be looking for. We should be looking for rocky planets in the habitable zones around relatively low mass stars, below about three to four solar masses. So having established what it is we're going to go looking for, let's go looking. So let's first of all take a look out around us and find out what is the universe like around us? What is there? What are the places we should be looking for planets in their habitable zones around nearby low-mass stars? So today's lecture is going to concentrate on the hunting ground for planetary systems, namely the solar neighborhood and beyond. We're going to first of all look to see what the closest stars are going to be. I'll introduce you to our nearest neighbors, Proxima Centauri, a red dwarf star, which is some four and a quarter light years away. The nearest sun-like star turns out just perfectly fortuitously to be Alpha Centauri, which is about 4.36 light years away. That turns out to be a binary star. In fact, actually, it's more than a binary. It's actually what's called a hierarchical triple, of which the third member turns out to be Proxima Centauri, in fact. So we're going to look a little bit at the properties of the Alpha Centauri system and see if there's anything interesting to, uh, to search for there. We're then going to expand our view outwards. What are the nearest stars? We're going to define something called the solar neighborhood. Now, the solar neighborhood is actually not perfectly well defined, but for the purposes of this class, I'm going to define the solar neighborhood as all the stars within 15 light years of the sun. There's different definitions for different purposes, but this one will suit us for today. If we then go out into the solar neighborhood and a bit beyond and say, what are the distribution of stars? What kinds of stars? Which are the most important types of stars around? What we find is, is that the sun is not, in fact, an ordinary star. Everyone likes to say in the books, oh, the sun is an ordinary star. In fact, it's not. Sun-like stars are actually relatively rare. They're less than 10%. Most of the nearby stars will turn out to be red dwarfs, M-type main-sequence stars, little poopy cool things that are going to be pretty much the vermin of the local solar neighborhood. Well, the solar neighborhood, as we're going to see, doesn't get us very many stars. It gets us barely 60 stars in round numbers out to 15 light years. So we're going to have to expand our view a little bit further if we're going to find sun-like stars. And so we'll spend the last part of the lecture talking about the fact that the sun is part of a galaxy called the Milky Way, a system of more than 200 billion stars made up of a disk and a central bulge. We're going to look at the properties and the places within that, at least an outline that give you an idea of what sort of the hunting ground is going to look like. And then over the next couple of days, after we get through this introduction, we're going to be talking about what is it we find? What are planetary systems that we do find around other stars? Where are we looking? And, and of course, the holy grail of the whole operation is, can we find another Earth in the habitable zone of its star? That's the real big goal that everyone would like to achieve. And we haven't done yet. So at the end of last week, we got to this particular diagram here. This, again, is a Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. Turns out to be our very important diagram for understanding the properties of stars and their evolution. And what we did was take the entire Hertzsprung-Russell diagram and we narrowed down those stars that had properties which we believe are conducive to life, that met the basic requirements for life. 
So what we're going to go looking for is we want to find rocky planets, a place to stand or swim, in the habitable zone of their stars, which means they're a place where you can have stable liquid water on the surface. We want those stars to be relatively long-lived, so you have time for um, planets to form and time for evolution to do its job. So you're going to exclude all those stars whose lives are too short, or that produce so much ultraviolet radiation they would sterilize the surfaces of any planets that were unfortunate enough to be in the so-called habitable zone. It's one thing to have liquid water on your surface. doesn't help you much if you've totally sterilized that water. Kind of blo- kind of defeats the whole purpose of having stuff grow in the water. We want to have stable energy sources, so that pretty much writes off all of the supergiants and giants. These are very transitory stages in the star's life when it's in the process of trying to end its life. You don't want to go looking for life around things that are in the process of trying to die as quickly as they can. Why dwarfs are not going to be very good? Because they, in fact, are already dead. They're just fading out. Again, they live for a long time, but they're really faint. It's going to be really hard to think of these as a good place to look for life. This isn't to say that life couldn't emerge there, couldn't actually hang on there. It's just not someplace we're going to spend a lot of time looking. Finally, down here at the lowest mass end of the main sequence, there's a couple of problems. And I'm going to kind of call it yellow rather than red to exclude because we don't know yet whether the exclusion is necessary or not. One of the problems is tidal locking. The stars will actually get tidally locked so their rotation is exactly synchronized with their orbit and they always keep the same face to the star. That could either be a real problem or not. It's actually, you can't really tell a priori. The other problem of very low mass stars is they tend to be, at least when they're young, magnetically active. So they're subject to a lot of flaring. That flaring could have the effect of being like a big meteorite impact, meaning an asteroid impact. Basically, it could sterilize part of the surface if it's energetic enough and everything is timed just wrong. But again, we're really not sure if that's as important, right? Up here, UV radiation for sterilization is because it's relentlessly blasting the planet day in, day out. Whereas down here, they're very quick episodic events. We don't know whether those are good. So this is kind of the zone we want to look at. We want to look at stars which are slightly bigger than the sun, the stars that are somewhat less massive than the sun, of which there are a number in quite abundance. They're fairly long-lived, long enough for evolution to get it going. They have plenty of metals to form planets out of. They seem to be the proper places to go looking for planet-bearing life. Life Life-bearing, not planet-bearing life. To look for life-bearing planets. So what do we got to look for? What do we got? Let's, let's look out into space. Let's go start looking for planets around other stars. Where are we going to look? Well, the first place we're going to look is in our local neighborhood. So if we go out from the sun, what's the first star we run into? For a long time, we didn't know because, in fact, the nearest star we know of to the sun is actually 100 times fainter than can be seen with the naked eye. It wasn't discovered until the 19th century. And it's a star we now call Proxima Centauri, It's because it's in the direction of the constellation of Centaurus, which is down in the southern hemisphere sky. We can't actually see it from the northern hemisphere. And it's called Proxima because it is the closest star to the sun. It's located about four and a quarter light years away, and it's a very small red dwarf star. In fact, it's an M5.5 main sequence star. It's a good classic right smack in the middle of the road red dwarf. And yes, as a matter of fact, it is a flare star, as most M dwarfs near us seem to be. It's about 12% the mass of the sun. Its radius is about 15% the radius of the sun. But it shines at a very feeble 
0.17% of a solar luminosity. If you put all those together, even though we're right next door, in fact, it's the closest star in the entire universe to us after the sun, it's basically 100 times fainter than you can see with the naked eye. I've only seen it through a telescope once just to say I could. I actually used a, a small telescope down at Cerro Tololo in Chile just so I could say I saw Proxima Centauri. The sun, here is a little model to put a, set the scale for you. Here's the sun. It's a G-type star, surface temperature around 5,800 degrees Kelvin. Proxima Centauri is a much cooler star, about 3,500 degrees Kelvin. And just for scale, here's the planet Jupiter. Just a little reminder, and this is actually something which I'd never done until recent years where this question sort of came up. These red dwarf stars are not all that bigger in size than the planet Jupiter, although they're an awful lot more massive. Right? This thing is 12% the mass of the sun. Jupiter is less than a thousandth the mass of the sun. So the big difference is Proxima is a lot denser. It's a lot more tightly packed. It's a star. It's hot enough in the center to get above 10 million degrees Kelvin to burn hydrogen fusion into helium. Jupiter has got a liquid metallic uh, mantle. It's got a rocky, icy core. It's not a failed star. It's just a great big old gas planet. But what's interesting is when you ask about what makes a planet the size it is, what makes a star the size it is, it all comes down to something pretty simple. It's the balance between pressure, trying to push all the gas away from a hot body, and gravity, trying to suck it all down into the smallest possible place. They come into this balance called hydrostatic equilibrium. And it just turns out, it's just one of these interesting little facts of nature, that the hydrostatic equilibrium for a Jupiter-mass planet, gas giant, is about the same size as hydrostatic equilibrium for a full-fledged red dwarf star. This fact is actually going to come back to us later when we talk about when we're searching for other planets. Turns out it's going to what is going to make being able to find Jupiter's close to M dwarfs relatively straightforward. Nothing people ever sort of expected. If, you, if they thought about it, they would go, oh, yeah, of course. But no one ever thought about it until we started finding them. Or not, as the case may be. But here, in, in a way, that's our nearest neighbor. And our nearest neighbor turns out to be a cool neighbor, in this case, an M star. To sort of put this in perspective, how far away the distance of four and a quarter light years. And toss, oh, yeah, four and a quarter light years. What does that mean? So let's take the sun and make it a regulation-sized golf ball. Regulation-sized golf ball is four, about four and a quarter centimeters in diameter. I had to go look that up on the web. Turned out, I ended up finding it finally on the Titleist website. More than I wanted to know about the manufacturing of golf balls. If we made the sun as a model of a golf ball, Proxima Centauri would be about the size of a pea, a little dried green pea, and I would have to get on an airplane and fly to Salt Lake City, leave town and go to the shore of Great Salt Lake before I would get as far away from the golf ball-sized sun as the Proxima is from us today. It's an awfully long ways away. It's about 2,500 kilometers away here. So the first thing this, this drives home right away is there's just an awful lot of empty space out there. Basically, Proxima Centauri is 268,000 astronomical units away. Remember, we are one astronomical unit away from our star. That's one heck of a long ways away. And again, this is the next door neighbor. I'm starting to emphasize one of the problems of understanding life around other worlds is the vast, vast distances we are dealing with between stars. In fact, let's put that vast distance in perspective. Technologically speaking, 
the fastest thing we as human beings have ever built is Voyager 1. It's the fastest moving spacecraft. And the only reason it's moving that fast is it's had a double slingshot, first past Jupiter and then past Saturn. It has left the solar system. In fact, it is cruising out of the solar system, not, unfortunately, towards Proxima Centauri. It's heading off somewhere in the constellation of Hercules, I think. I forget exactly where Voyager 1 is heading. It hasn't quite completely left the bounds of the solar system, but it's currently moving at 62,100 kilometers per hour. That's clocking in at 38,600 miles per hour. That's almost unimaginably imaginably fast. But Proxima is 268,000 AUs away. You crunch the numbers, that's 4 times 10 to the 13 kilometers. That's a big number. And when you divide 4 times 10 to the 13 kilometers, that's 40 trillion kilometers away. Yeah. And divided by 38,600 miles an hour, it would take 74,000 years. If Voyager 1 was pointed at Proxima, it'll arrive there sometime about 75,000 years from now. Again, put it in human perspective. The oldest recognizable human artifacts that aren't simple stone tools are only about 26,000 years old. This is longer than human beings have had. We've had civilization for what? 6,000 years? 7,000 years, depending on how you count? So this is 10 times longer than all of human civilization just to go into the neighbor's yard. So that gives you an idea of the real problem that we're up against here when we start considering life on other stars. Space is very, very empty, and the stars are very, very far apart. And this is going to definitely dog us when we start talking about issues of travel to other stars, colonization, other issues associated with that, is this is the big challenge. Space is really, really empty. So let's keep moving out. Okay. What are we getting at? Well, if I go out five light years, so I go out into a sphere that takes light five years to get from the sun to the outer part of that sphere, or ten years to cross light in that volume, I find four stars. Our sun, Proxima Centauri, and a double star system called Alpha Centauri A and B. The name Alpha Centauri refers to the fact that it is the brightest star in the constellation of Centaurus, hence the Alpha. The second brightest star would be Beta Centauri, Gamma Centauri, Delta Centauri, and so forth. So Alpha Centauri is, the, is a bright, naked-eye star, very easily visible in the southern hemisphere. I first saw it for the first time from the summit of Mauna Kea on the Big Island of Hawaii. You have to get kind of far south, but it's there. It's obvious. It's not the brightest star in the sky, but it's bright enough. Alpha Centauri A and B, the reason why the A and B is because this, is in fact, is a binary star. The two stars orbit each other. They're on a slightly elliptical orbit around each other. And the closest point of approach between Alpha Centauri A and B is about 11 astronomical units. So it comes pretty close. It's a fairly big system. Alpha Centauri A is a G2 star. It's a little about 10% more massive than the sun. It's a little bit larger, about 23% larger, and has about one and a half solar luminosity. So it's a nice sun-like star, kind of at the upper end of the G2 line. Alpha Centauri B is a K star, so it's going to be slightly cooler. It gets sort of a slightly reddish tinge to it in the little model I've drawn here. It's about 90% the mass of the sun and about 90% its radius, and only about half of the brightness of the sun. And they orbit each other with a fairly obvious um, period. It's a binary system, and the whole shebang is located about 4.37 light years away. Shown for scale, and this is the correct scale, is Proxima and the Sun. So interestingly, fortuitously enough, we have a Sun-like star right next door 
just after Proxima. And in fact, Proxima is not all by itself. It actually orbits around the Alpha Centauri AB system. It's many tens of thousands of astronomical units away. I don't know why, but I did not write in my note that distance. I want to say something like 60,000 astronomical units, but I'm just drawing a, a total blank, and I'm going to hurt myself for saying that. So these two form the central core of the binary star. Proxima orbits much, much further away, way outside the orbital influence of these two. So as far as gravity is concerned, the, to Proxima, basically it sees the gravity of both of these stars as if they were one down in the center to a, to a reasonable, reasonably good approximation. The situation where you have a tight binary surrounded by a third star orbiting a long ways away has a name. It's called a hierarchical triple. Turns out there's a lot of hierarchical triples in the sky, a surprising number. And just so happens, the first star system right next door is a hierarchical triple. However, this does not mean that it is out of the running for a possibility of life. Normally, when you have two stars orbiting each other, they are going to destabilize orbits for anything that lies sort of partway between them. Okay, If you've got a planet, say, right here smack between A and B, and I'm showing them at their minimum 11 astronomical unit separation. Of course, it's going to feel a gravitational tug from the A star, and it's going to feel a gravitational f- tug from star B. So which way is it going to go? Well, actually, it turns out more likely it's going to go neither, and it's going to get flung out into space. So this whole space between the stars in a binary star system, the constant dynamical tugging and pulling basically clears that space out. But remember, the gravitational force gets stronger as the square of the distance. So the closer you approach either star A or star B, eventually you reach a regime where the gravity is dominated by the nearest of the two stars. And you eventually reach a point where you can, in fact, stabilize the orbits. They might be a little funky-looking orbits, but they're not going to go unstable and flick the planet out into into the boondocks. So this is actually an important piece of information. We don't need to throw out binary stars when we're looking for the plausible stars for life. We just have to worry about whether the habitable zone is within the stable orbit zone. And as it happens, with the best dynamical models available, here's a little cartoon of Alpha Centauri A and B showing what I've drawn here is the white circles here are the orbits of Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars simply plopped down on the stars, just for reference. So we would be out here in the third circle at one astronomical unit away from Alpha Centauri A or B if we had exactly the patterning of planets. This is just a set scale. The light green, not surprisingly, is the limits of the habitable zone around each of these stars. And what we see is, first and foremost, is that once I stay inside this limit of stability, orbital stability, which we think is a circle of, in round numbers, about two astronomical units around each star, If your orbit is inside that circle, you are going to be long-term stable, meaning billions of years stable. Furthermore, we see that if we had an arrangement of planets similar to the rocky planets of the inner solar system, that some of them would land in the habitable zones. In Alpha Centauri, the brighter star, it's 10% brighter than the sun, so I'm sorry, 10% more massive than the sun, and it is, number just skipped right out of my noodle there, 50% brighter than the sun, As we saw in the homework problems you've been working, the habitable zone in brighter stars moves out and gets wider. And in fact, the habitable zone is roughly between the orbit of the Earth and Mars in our system. 
Alpha Centauri B is a fainter star, about half the brightness of the sun. And when you do the numbers, it basically puts the habitable zone roughly between the Earth and Venus. So it's not out of the running. We don't currently know of any planets around Alpha Centauri A or B. It's very challenging to search for them, even though it is so close. But people are still working on it, whether it's, we'll see tomorrow when we talk about how we search for planets, say a little bit about why Alpha Cent A and B are kind of challenging. It's if there's certainly no really big planets, but there could be small rocky planets still. The technology's not quite down there yet. So there's still some hope. Could be that our nearest neighbor could in fact have habitable zones. They're certainly inside the stable zones of the binary system. Maybe there's a chance for these things to have planets. We certainly think that the way in which planetary systems form are similar around stars like the sun. So at least there's a reasonable expectation. It's not crazy to think that Alpha Sen may in fact have at least rocky planets. And once we detect them, maybe we'll get lucky. Maybe these will be in the habitable zone. Because it is the nearest by sun-like star, in various scenarios that people have begun to work out for how we would begin to explore stars, Alpha Centauri is the obvious first target. If you're going to go out and check out the neighborhood, start with the next door neighbors. And so away we go. Also because they really are the nearest stars by a whole bunch. So the nearby star, Alpha Sen, got some interesting problems, but also got some possibilities. And we don't know the answer yet, but it's an object of tremendous study right now. So let's go further out. Let's meet the neighbors. Well, if we're going to go out for a stroll in our neighborhood, we go out to about 15 light years. 15 light years is a long ways, right? It's 30 light years across. So it takes light 30 years to, to traverse this volume. Even when we go out that far, we're four, three times further away than our nearest neighbors, we still only come up with about just under 60 stars. People think there may be as many as 65 stars here. Some of them are very faint, very hard to find and identify. So we're still searching for the, for the nearest neighbors, but certainly we know who all the bright ones are. The current census of nearby stars is that there are 56 stars in 38 systems represented in the current solar neighborhood of around 15 light years around the sun. Of these, 38, of these 56 stars, 24 of them are single stars just like the sun. They just float around all by themselves. Ten of them are binary systems that consist of two stars, sometimes of comparable mass, sometimes of greatly differing mass. And there are four triple systems. In addition to Alpha Centauri, AB, and Proxima, there are a couple of other triple star systems in here. And I'm, of course, I'm immediately blanking on which ones they are because they're not, they're not, they don't really stand out in any particular way to me. Some of those binary systems are unusual. For example, Sirius here, the bright dog star, it's an A star. It's the brightest star in the sky that we can see from the Earth in terms of apparent brightness. It has a binary companion, but that binary companion is a one solar mass white dwarf. Procyon, over here, another bright star. It's the bright star in the constellation of Canis Minor. Turns out Procyon is also a binary star, and Procyon B is also a white dwarf. So at least two of these binary systems involve a very evolved star. We basically see the leftover carbon-oxygen core of an older star, which has long since evolved away from the main sequence, while its other companions, Sirius A and Procyon A, are regular old main sequence stars. So the interesting numbers that come out of this, if we just look at the 56 stars nearby, about half of them are in binaries or triples. 
And that turns out to be a statistic that is going to continue to, to exist as we go further and further out and we survey a larger and larger number of stars. It's harder and harder to tell, especially when the binary separations are really big. It's hard to tell if those two stars are really going together in the sky. But when we do the numbers in round numbers, about half of all stars are in binaries or triples. There's even systems of four and five stars. Those get, obviously, much more rare. So only half the stars are going to turn out to be single stars. And so we do have to kind of fret, like we did in the case of Alpha Centauri, of is the binary very close? Does it have any stable orbits? Could it have formed a planetary system? Does it provide a stable, dynamical environment for planets to exist for a long enough time to reside in their habitable zones to perhaps give rise to life? And so it turns out to be one of the challenges of going around and searching for stars is among the, some of the basic ways that we search for stars around other pla uh, search for planets around other stars is we look for the gravitational tug of that planet upon their host star to give away their position because the planets will just be hopelessly faint compared to the brightness of the stars they surround. But if those stars happen to be part of a binary system, it is very much more observationally challenging to pick out the weak little wiggle due to the planet against the immense signal coming in from the motions of that binary system. So it's going to present a challenge to us. It means basically if we go out and do dynamical surveys for the presence of planets, about half the stars are going to make the job really hard on us because they're in these binary systems. They're in these dynamically challenging systems to observe. So that's an interesting little fact we're going to, we're going to come back to a little bit at various times. It may in fact limit the number of stars that could be possible harbors of life. Now this cartoon I've drawn here, this is a nice little computer cartoon I picked up off of a very nice website that, that does a sort of local zoom out, certainly better than anything I was able to create, much better graphic tools than I got, is if you add up the total volume in here and you add up, there's 56 stars spread out over a volume, 15 light years in radius, you find out very quickly that stars are pretty thin on the ground or thin in space out there. The density of stars in the solar neighborhood is four stars per 1,000 cubic light years. 0 0.004 stars per cubic light year. That's small. What that means is the average distance between stars here is about six light years, which is not quite half of the size of the region that we're looking at. So star space is, space is really big and it's really, really empty. There's a long distances between stars in this, part of the, in this part of the galaxy. So again, it sort of gives us a, something of a challenge. It's going to be easier to see st planets near stars when they're fairly close to us because the further something gets away, everything gets fainter, everything gets harder. But it turns out there's not a whole lot that we can do. There really aren't that many stars nearby. So if we're going to be looking for stars, we're going to have to start going further out. So immediately we know that to get enough stars to survey, if planetary systems are rare, we're going to have to move up in numbers. So it's the first piece of sort of outlining what we're really going to learn about today is we're seeing what the challenges are in front of us for looking for planets. Here's the other challenge. If we do a census, now I'm going to make a, a, a much bigger volume. So the neighborhood census I've made much bigger to get a lot more stars. In this case, I've gone out to 30 light years. This particular one uses the unit of parsecs, which we, we haven't really brought up. A parsec is actually an observational distance unit. It's about three and a quarter light years in round numbers. But for our purposes, I'm translating everything to light years. So if I go out into this volume, out to about 30 light years around the sun, 
what I find is the, the distribution, so this is the number of stars inside that volume of a given luminosity. And remember that star's luminosity maps to its mass, if it's a main sequence star. But within this volume, there aren't too many giants or supergiants. And there's a few white dwarfs, but we're not going to worry too much about those. They're just kind of fussed down here on the end. But what we see is, here's the sun right here. The sun is way down the curve. The sun is, in fact, a fairly rare star. As we go to lower and lower luminosity, as we go from left to right, this is one of these... I apologize in advance. Astronomers like to do things backwards, okay? Astronomers like to plot big things on the left, small things on the right. I, I, I don't know. It's just history and tradition. Maybe it's like the secret astronomer's handshake to keep the physicists out, out of the club or something like that. But we do this a lot. So you've got to sort of pay attention here when these come up because I get them backwards too. Um, the sun is really way out here on the curve. There really are not a lot of high-mass objects out near the sun, but there's a whole lot of low-mass objects. And so the conclusion turns out to be rather, rather um, interesting for us. Stars like the sun are pretty thin on the ground. In fact, let's just do the real numbers. Let's restrict our attention now just to main sequence stars of all types. Hello. <laughs> that was interesting. Um, so here are the sequence of stars. These are all main sequence stars. O, B, A, F, G, K, and M from the hottest to the coolest from the highest mass to the lowest mass, highest luminosity to lowest luminosity. What we find is, is that O and B stars, we really don't have to sweat throwing those out of the list of things to look at because there really aren't that many around to start with. So throwing out the O, B stars, and heck, even throwing out the A stars as possibilities of places to look for planets, I haven't lost that many places to look. Right? It's like going into a population saying, okay, I'm going to be going around looking for people with a certain characteristic, a certain color of eyes, and oh, by the way, I'm not going to talk to everybody, anybody over seven feet. Well, that's you know, a handful of people, and they all play basketball, and that's about it. All right? But everyone else is down kind of in the short and fat zone, like the rest of us. So we take out the OAB stars, we're all a percent or less. G stars like the sun are only 7% of stars in the local volume. So seven out of 100 stars, only seven of them are G stars like the sun. So we're pretty rare, relatively speaking. We're in that lower 10%. The most abundant star by far is the M dwarf. 75% of nearby stars are red dwarfs. So that whole section of stars that we were really nervous about including in our planetary search census, because they tend to be flare stars, and in order to get the habitable zone, it's going to be close to the star because the star is low luminosity and cool. So the habitable zone snugs in close to the star. It turns out to get inside the tidal locking radius. So any, even any planets that happen to be around M stars in the habitable zone are likely to be tidally locked. And they'll be subject to the fact that M stars, when they're young especially, tend to be flare stars. So we immediately have a quandary. The places we really want to look are right here, F, G, and K. And then the low end of K also starts getting into the whole tidal locking, snug, close-in, narrow, habitable zones. Remember, as the star gets more luminous, the habitable zone gets wider and it moves out. So we got a kind of a problem. The stars we think are most likely to be the kind of really good stars for this. Not going to get tidal locking, nice, big, fat, habitable zones, long, stable lifetimes are rare. Relatively speaking, they're fairly rare. So this is a challenge for us. 
It means that if we're going to go out and say, I want to find analogs of the Earth, and I want to find them around G stars, maybe the warmer side of K stars and the cooler side of F stars, I'm going to have to survey out to some really big volumes because i got small numbers. It's like saying, okay, I'm going to do an experiment, but I only want six-foot redheads. Five-foot redheads, forget them. Seven-foot redheads, nope, can't deal with them. I want six-foot two to six-foot five redheads. Even in a place like the size of Columbus, how many six-foot two to six-foot five redheads do you think they are? And I haven't even asked whether men or women, old or young or old. So, same problem. I want a very particular kind of star, or at least I think I want a very particular kind of star, in order to get that many, get enough of them to study for whatever it is I'm studying, I've got to get a whole bunch of them together, which means I've got to go out and sample a larger and a larger and a larger population. So I'm going to have to extend my search out to greater distances. That's going to add to the challenge. The greater the distance I'm dealing with, the fainter the stars, the further away they are, various systematics come into play. So this kind of gives you an idea of the outline of the problem that's in front of us. Space is big, space is empty, and the kinds of stars we really want to look at turn out not to be the most common stars in the sky. And this is something we're going to be able to overcome, but we're going to have to, it's going to require a lot more work to do the job. Here's an idea of sort of what the local volume looks like. This again is one of these computer-generated drawings here, the circles here. In this particular case, the circles are every 10, actually this is every 5 light years in this particular drawing here. This is all the stars within 35 light years of the sun. And you'll notice now the big difference, right? The first picture I show was all the stars within 15 light years. There were literally a handful of naked eye visible stars. Sirius, Procyon, Alpha Centauri, the sun, and that was pretty much it. Now we get out to 35 light years away from the sun. I start picking up stars that are reasonably naked eye. Some of them are very bright stars like Altair and Fomalhaut and Sirius and Vega. Some of you may know some of those names, some of those not. Those turn out to be A stars. They're, notice they're nice and coated, nice and blue. Those are not going to be very likely to look for, but we won't want to rule them out right away. You can see the sort of yellow and orange stars. Those are the G and K stars. So we actually are starting to, once we get out to about 35 light years, we start picking up a couple dozen G and K stars. So there's actually some reasonable search potential within the local volume. Now it's really hard to see. Is this particular picture... It's a little hard to see on this particular picture, but some of these stars, in fact, have little asterisks next to them. That's a little bit of a hint coming up. Anything with an asterisk next to it, which you can barely see on this particular drawing, has already had a giant gas planet detected around it in the last few years. So we are beginning now. A lot of the study of the searches for planets are beginning to concentrate on these nearby bright stars. But it's still, you know, let's say only 10% of stars had planets in round numbers then i got to search for 10 G stars before I might hope to find one. So we're going to have to expand the volume even further. Let's step out to 65 light years. So that last drawing I showed you would fit snug down in the central little portion of the central third of the screen. Now I start picking up a lot more stars. And of course, because it's uh, relatively bright in here, you can't see all the little fainter stars. At this point, you can't see all the red dwarfs. The red dwarfs are vermin through this thing. There's, there's thousands of red dwarf stars. But even if you go out 65 light years, bright, naked eye, nameable stars are still pretty thin on the ground. And finally, I just cut the lights here just so you could see this. Oops, that was the wrong light switch. 
This shows you the local volume out to 250 light years around the sun. And these are all stars which are roughly nameable and then a long spattering of other stars. So now we're starting to get into real numbers. So you have to get out pretty far. It turns out that most of the surveys we're going to be undertaking to look for stars around other planets, <coughs> looking for planets around other stars, we're going to have to get out to about 100 light years in round numbers. 250 light years is kind of the upper end of a lot of the techniques. That's a real challenge. And it's really gonna, it really sets the stage for how this search works. But even as impressive as 100 or 250 light years is concerned, it's only scratching the surface. And there may be ways to push it out even further. Because after all, this is just our neighborhood, although this is now sort of the extended neighborhood, getting out kind of into the local village, if you will. It's not the bulk of the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. We live in a much bigger system of stars. The Milky Way, if you walk outside on a clear summer night, you can see the Milky Way is a diffuse band of light which crosses the nighttime sky. Its name, which we use, the Milky Way, is derived from various Greek and Latin names for it. The Greeks called it the Galaxias Kuklos, the Milky, Milky Band. Galaxias is the Greek word for milk. For those of you who know a little bit of biology or chemistry, you might know that there's a sugar called galactose. The word lactose is uh, cognate with the Latin lactea, so a person who's lactose intolerant is someone who can't drink milk, for example, or milk byproducts. So in Greek, the galaxias kuklos, or in Latin, the via lactea, the road or the way of milk. And hence, when you warp that into that good old Anglo-Saxon language that we all speak, it becomes the Milky Way. Milky Way has been portrayed not only as a Milky River, uh, for example, the Navajo of the southwestern United States saw it as a trail of flour left behind after coyote stole a, stole a bag of flour, leaving it, trailing it across the sky. Chinese viewed the, the Milky Way as a gigantic celestial river. It's all had various, various names throughout all societies because most of the societies lived in times without electric lighting and could actually see this at night. One of the real disappointments of being alive in the 21st century is probably most of you have not seen the Milky Way in its full glory. I have to go to mountaintops in Chile or Arizona to see it. I simply can't see it out my backyard. When I was growing up in the Mojave Desert, I could see the Milky Way out of my backyard. It was awesome. But of course, now I go home and there's street lights everywhere, so it can't be done. This bright band of light is our home. It's a gigantic rotating disk of stars it's a thin, flattened disk through most of its extent. And then in the very center, it bulges up into a slightly spheroidal shape, known somewhat unimaginatively as the galactic bulge. It's about 100,000 light years in diameter and about 1,000 light years thick at its thickest points. Gets much thicker when you get down into the central galactic bulge. As we look towards the center of our galaxy from the Earth, this is a picture, actually this is an all-sky panorama of the center of our Milky Way, much of the very center of our galaxy is in fact obscured to our sight. There's a tremendous amount of gas and small particulate matter referred to generically as dust filling the plane of the galaxy. This is the raw materials out of which new generations of stars can be formed. But unfortunately, it also blocks our view. It's like looking through cloudy weather. And so we, in fact, do not get a good view of the center of our galaxy unless I go all the way into infrared wavelengths, which can begin to cut through the fog of dust and gas between us and the center of the galaxy. We live out in a spiral galaxy, as we mentioned in previous lectures. It's got a spiral pattern of bright stars. 
The blue stars, the hot stars that are the signposts of recent star formation, all occur along the spiral arms. The reasons for that, unfortunately, is another lesson for another class. The sun actually lives roughly in between two of the spiral arms out here in the outer parts of our galaxy. We are, in round numbers, about 26,000 light years from the center of the Milky Way. Compare that number to the ones we've been slinging around. Nearest star is about four and a quarter light years away. The volume out to which I think I can reasonably survey for stars is a hundred, maybe two hundred light years in diameter or radius, depending on which way I want to do it. And yet, we're still 26,000 light years away from the center of our galaxy. This whole system contains about 200 billion stars. So we're barely scratching the surface. That survey volume I was talking about of where we're going to look for nearby stars to search for planets is a little tiny, teeny circle about the size of the arrowhead there. So therein lies part of the problem. We'd like to find planets with life. We'd like to maybe even really like to find other galactic civilizations, somebody we can talk to. We're barely able to get out of the local neighborhood we can't even go out into the rest of the whole state, the whole country, the whole galaxy that we, that we live in. And so herein again lies part of the, 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 the tremendous challenge of searching for life in the universe is the vast distances involved. Even with the best of our technology, we're only sampling a tiny piece. This brings up lots of questions. Is the piece that we're looking at representative of what's going on in the rest of the galaxy, yes or no? If I don't find planets nearby, does that mean they're not in the rest of the galaxy or am I just looking in the wrong place? All kinds of questions like that we're going to be wrestling with as we go through this whole section here. Now, if we look, however, there turns out to be something interesting we can do. If we take a look, this is a beautiful edge-on galaxy in the southern hemisphere, which probably looks very much like what our Milky Way would look like from the outside. We're sitting here part way out from the sun. We're looking towards the center, and this bright band of dust kind of dark band of dust kind of blocks our view from the center. But this bulge up in the front is very bright and very visible. The galactic bulge is roughly spherical in size, shape. You can sort of see it's kind of an oval bulge on either side of the disk. It's somewhat yellowish in color in this color photograph. That's not color enhancement. It really is that color because we're dealing with mostly old, relatively evolved stars. Most of the light that you're seeing in this particular picture actually comes from giant, super, from giant stars, red giants. That's why it gives it that kind of reddish, yellowish haze to it. A lot of these stars are very old. We can actually measure the ages of the stars, look at the, the stars using the evolution models that we, we have for nearby stars. And we find that a lot of the stars down in the central bulge of our galaxy are about 10 billion years old. When you remember that the universe is only about 13.5 billion years old, we're dealing with among the first generation of stars to form, probably really more like second and third generation. The first generation has long since been lost but we're dealing with an ancient set of stars which were formed with the formation of the galaxy. But the other part that's going to be very useful to us for looking at the galactic bulge is there's an awful lot of stars there. The density of stars is about three stars per cubic light year. That's more than a thousand times the density of stars in the local solar neighborhood where I have four stars per thousand cubic light years locally. So the stars are a lot closer together they're a lot denser together, and there's a whole lot of them in that confined space. The entire galactic bulge of our galaxy contains tens of billions of stars. Now, why am I mentioning this? 
Well, part of why I'm doing that is we put a lot of stars in a small place, all at about the same distance, and we actually can study many billions of them collectively in terms of their properties. So while it doesn't seem obvious, it's 26,000 light years away, it turns out that the bulge is going to prove to be an assistance to us in searching for planets. Maybe they have planets themselves, and we're just starting to reach the point that we can begin to detect planets around stars in our bulge in various ways that we'll discuss in the next couple days, but also will turn out to be an assistance in searching for stars between us and the bulge. We can use a technique called gravitational microlensing that we're going to introduce, which will actually allow us to vastly extend the reach to which we can go to find planets. In fact, Ohio State is one of the leaders in the area of using this gravitational microlensing um, uh, technique to find stars around uh, planets around other stars. I stuck on that one today. Um, I'm part of the team here at Ohio State that's been doing this, and so far we've discovered nearly a dozen planets this way. So it's actually a very effective technique. But this is the challenge before us. This is a beautiful picture taken from the summit of Mauna Kea, and it really sums up what we're up against. There are 200 billion stars in the Milky Way. Most of them are M-dwarfs. They're little, tiny, poopy, red, very faint little M-dwarf stars. We probably shouldn't not look around M-stars. Yes, there's the problems of tidal locking. Yeah, there's the problem of flaring, but there's just an awful lot of them. And you've got to think that even if it's highly unlikely for a planetary system with life to emerge around an M-star... If you've got an awful lot of chances, your probability just went way the heck up. And so we actually are going to, on the basis of this, even though Friday, by the end of the day, we thought, M-dwarfs, forget them. There's no reason to look around them. When you're up against the sheer numbers, maybe we've got to reconsider. And so we're beginning to extend our search for planets down to the M-stars and seeing what we can see. So we know what we should be looking for. There's where we got to look. What have we found? And that's what we'll pick up tomorrow.